I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Terminator Dark Fate. Two days ago, I had this nice, simple life. And now it's a nightmare. seen one like you before. Almost human. I am human. Why do you care what happens to her? Because I was her. How do we win? We win by keeping you alive. With us this time around are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. For John. Caro Nagisa. For Sarah. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Of Sequentially Yours. And Jesse Ferguson, time travel specialist from the Recorded Tomorrow podcast. And I am extremely funny. This is true. Now, on the subject of Jesse, if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level, you can download the accompanying podcast that he and I put together when Dark Fate launched a few months ago, all about how the time travel worked across the whole Terminator series and sometimes when it didn't. I'm going to re release that episode this week to make it easier to find because technically it is like a bonus show as well, but that'll just be like as well as the thing that goes mm-hmm. out on the main bonus feed, uh, especially for those of you who may have skipped it at the time to avoid spoilers on Dark Fate. I know I wanted to talk about time travel in a way that wouldn't completely overwhelm the main show, because like, we talked for a good half an hour on that, so that's, there's a yeah. lot in there. And uh, we, I didn't want to make our listeners go cross-eyed either, and it ended up really good. Many decades ago, there were just a handful of movies in this series, the passion project of a visionary director surfing the wave of technological advancement in the Hollywood system. The story closed out, but in an open-ended way that left it dormant with fans hungry for more. Then disaster struck. We actually got more. 
of them, and they were bad, tarnishing the name of the originals, failing to make an impact, even as they extended into TV. But then something great happened. After more time and a studio change, a new sequel emerged that felt like the original, opening up a fresh perspective with progressive, diverse energy and a new and terrifying stalking dark hunter. The grizzled old warrior from the past returning to escort this new female hero to her destiny. Audiences returned to the cinema in droves, spurred on by how much the original spirit was back after years of misjudged efforts, making The Force Awakens one of the most successful movies of all time. (laughs) And then four years later, Terminator Dark Fate repeated this exact pattern, and rather than recognising what this was, everybody dismissed it, so our show is going to be about why that was a great shame, and why this movie is fucking fantastic. There was the same 10-year gap between Salvation in 2009 and Dark Fate in 2019 that Star Wars had with Revenge of the Sith in 2005 and The Force Awakens in 2015. What Star Wars fortunately did not have was a mediocre reboot featuring Mark Hamill as old Luke Skywalker in 2011. That was what terminated Genesis in 2015, four years before Dark Fate, bringing Schwarzenegger back to the franchise for the first time in 12 years, alongside a young Sarah Connor back again as a character for the first time in 24 years, was. That's if you didn't see the TV show, and most people didn't. If there's a solid reason why the overriding dismissal of this movie hamstrung it so hard, it is due possibly to that one lame reboot too many. Then again, the fact that Rise of the Machines and the Sarah Connor Chronicles and Salvation and Genesis were all failed attempts at rebooting the series and creating more sequels, that they kept going back to the drawing board and starting again with a new cast, that can only have made sure that the message that this was in fact an in-world legacy sequel to Judgment Day got lost. The prequels and the Clone Wars, which were the first Star Wars experiences for a generation of younger kids, remain in continuity to this day. The Force Awakens did not toss those out in the reboot like every successive Terminator film does. Hell, to the many that love it, The Last Jedi utilises that bygone culture of the Republic to critique the Jedi and add deep tissue to old Luke Skywalker's journey. Dark Fate does what Rise of the Machines attempted and failed at because the makers of Terminator 3 neither loved nor took seriously the strengths of those first two films. As our episode from 2015 detailed, that was the one where we got Josh Garrity on and at the beginning he was like, oh, it's all right, I don't mind this film that much and by the end he was like, oh, I hate this film and he actually got angry and Josh never gets angry about anything. But if you remember that episode, what we detailed was that they seemed almost embarrassed to be making a Terminator film. Uh, If you watch the scene in the uh, bar where the guy is stripping and that's when the T-800 gets his... Uh, gets his clothes and boots a motorcycle and the, the Elton John sunglasses gag. That's, that's exemplary of this kind of Saturday Night Live gag that this movie kind of predicated itself on rather than actually doing it properly. And they put together what I would call the Dracula Dead and Loving It of the series. But that was supposed to be a sequel to Judgment Day even though if you actually pay attention to what people are saying, it actually couldn't be. It, it, it isn't, and this version of John Connor is a total dimwit. 
However, Salvation was an attempt to break the formula because everyone complained that the Terminator films were always just the same thing over and over again. So they were like, let's mix it up a bit. They took it into the future conflict and they wanted to stop retelling that time loop cyborg chase movie in the streets of L.A. It was instead a war movie, just not a good one. Genesis went back and ended up splitting the difference, starting as the chase movie and conducting itself in the end like hapless Terminator fanfic. Nothing wrong with fanfic, but that's what this ended up feeling like, and not particularly great fanfic at that. Not very well observed. Now, all three of these movies had fine elements. T3 had an unsettling and powerful ending that it didn't earn. Salvation had an intense and authentically Kyle Reese performance from Anton Yelchin. And Genesis had a brief and spooky appearance from Byun Hung Lee as the T-1000 and quite an endearing turn from Schwarzenegger as Pops Terminator and Amelia Clark as Danny, sorry, young Sarah Connor. Unfortunately, <laughs> the, these, uh, the, the naming doesn't seem to be a mistake. Unfortunately, these films were mired in weaker elements. Jonathan Mostow representing a plummet into a creativity ravine away from the talent and passion of James Cameron. What a step down. McGee and his incompetence as a director for Salvation. A roaring, depressed Christian Bale. Alan Taylor and his dismal complacency as a director. Jai Courtney. Just Jai Courtney. The aggressive mediocrity of Jason Clarke as John <laughs> Skynet Connor. Obviously, these are all just my opinions, and some folks may absolutely love these movies. But one thing is, one thing is clear: like none of these movies had a continuation. Even if you did love them, there wasn't a sequel because they did not get taken to heart the way that people took the original Terminator to heart and, and T2. It wasn't a big event that everyone was happy with. It was something that a lot of people were like, "Ah, another one." So I can understand kind of why people stayed away, and. It sucks, because they finally got it right this time. Cameron himself said that the reason Dark Fate is a true follow-up to Terminator 2 is as much to do with tone as it is with narrative. And that's what's been off with the three films in between. Although maybe not necessarily with Sarah Connor Chronicles, which we actually feel like that had some really solid elements to it as well. Yeah, and, and that's probably the closest match in tone. Yeah. But you're absolutely right, the fact that none of those intervening films took off and got further sequels made to themselves. The fact that every director who got handed this franchise started by saying, have you turned it off and on again? <laughs> and they always got on James Cameron to get his blessing, and he was like, ah, blessing, schmessing, there you go. You know, this one's, this one's the good one. I don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, he signed his blessing when he signed the check. But let me tell you about Avatar 2. That thing's gonna be big. Anyway... So let's talk about it. Let's talk about Dark Fate. My first question for the group is, and this is an in-world question, Skynet is gone now, though it used to exist in another timeline. With Legion and John and Danny and Sarah, what seems to be this film's statement on the downfall of mankind? Grace, tell me what happens when this all falls apart. Nothing happens. There's no warning. Day one, everything just stops. No phones, no power. Cities go dark. They told us we had to leave. 
just until things go back to normal. The normal is never coming back. Day two, they launched nukes. They thought they could contain Legion with tactical EMP strikes. And by day three, the whole world was at war. Millions died. And then, when the food ran out, billions. Some men killed my dad over a can of peaches. Sorry. When we thought the worst was over, then Legion started to hunt survivors. But I got lucky. Someone found me. Saved me. And then we started fighting back. And let me guess. Danny gives birth to the one man that can stop it. What? The future wants you dead for the same reason it wanted me dead. But I'm nothing. I'm, I'm nobody. Yeah, you're not the threat. <laughs> it's your womb. <sighs> Fine. Let someone else be Mother Mary for a while. If you're Mother Mary, why do I so want to beat the shit out of you? If anything, it's suggesting that we are already intrinsically linked to a system that has no resilience built into it. That it is likely an apocalyptic type event, even if it doesn't end up being the true apocalypse, would be horrendously easy. Just nudge the system a little bit in the right places and everything's leaning on everything else so it all falls over. Can't imagine what you might be referencing in the Full disclosure, folks, we are recording this smack bang in the middle of the pandemic, which I'm hoping we get to look back on in the mid-2020s and go, remember when we had to stay in for ages, for like a year? And, uh, yeah, our, our kids tell their kids, yeah, it sucked, but mom and dad were home a lot, and we got on each other's nerves. <laughs> so, I, what, now we're going to find out in... Uh, in a few months that the U.S. has been quietly working on an AI system to manage the uh, manage the outbreak and contain the contagion. And it's called Skynet. <laughs> or Legion. <laughs> Meanwhile, Legion is chuckling it to itself going, <clears throat> manage, they said. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I think this film really brings into sharp relief is the concept that there is always a disaster over the horizon and we can be told about it and told about it and told about it, but that won't necessarily make humanity do something about it unless we see at least some of the fallout of that firsthand. You, the, the Terminator movies, the good ones, are filled with people who are absolutely correct saying the world is going to end 
and you need to listen to me because I know what to do to stop it. And people going, no, really? No, it's fine. It'll be fine. I know the date it happens. I'm sure it feels very real to you. On August 29th, 1997, it's going to feel pretty fucking real to you, too. Anybody not wearing two million sunblock is going to have a real bad day. Get it? God, you think you're safe and alive? You're already dead. Everybody. Him, you, you're dead already. This whole place, everything you see is gone. You're the one living in a fucking dream, some of it. Because I knew it happened. It happened. And then... As soon as robots start fighting other robots, oh, now we're paying attention. Now, now we're believing the experts. In addition to that, what Dark Fate also does when when it, you know, transitions from The Force Awakens into The Last Jedi surprise in the first scene of the movie is it posits that there's always going to be something that defines humanity's ability to survive or not. And that during that point in time, whether it's John or whether it's Danny, humanity always has the ability to rally around a cause and people who will do something to start to put the pieces back together. Yeah, we talked about this in the in the bonus episode that that it it doesn't matter if you rearrange the details a little bit that human nature always seems to be to bring itself right to the brink. But there's always hope because, yes, while in every timeline we invent some equivalent of Skynet, in every timeline we also eventually win. Plus, I think Danny kind of put it best. Fuck fate. There's no... um, These films so far have been built very much on the special blood trope and ultimately what this one is saying is that no with no john connor there will be a danny with no danny there would be somebody else there is always somebody who's willing to step up and be the person that we need and sometimes and that could be you that could be me that could be anybody listening to this podcast right now that's yeah, a it's great it's, message. <laughs> it, it, as soon as I realized that that's what the movie was going for, I'm like, oh, I see why Alex is suddenly like, we must record on this. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the tsunamis. I'm go- glad that I'm synonymous with this mode of thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's very encouraging. The tsunamis will keep coming. There's nothing we can do about the waves, but there are people over here teaching us how to surf. <clears throat> Yeah. Mm, nice. Yeah. Brendan, you mentioned the uh, that that people, humanity, will kind of ignore a problem until it's right, you know, right in front of them. And really, we've been proving this for you know fifty hundred years now. Um, th- this right now, we're talking, we're joking about it being you know analogous to what we're dealing with right now, this pandemic. But you could also make the argument that Legion is a metaphor for climate change, for overpopulation, for um, you know lack of healthcare. There's there's multiple multiple things that have been staring us in the face, and that people have been shouting at that folks in power have been ignoring and even like right now we're starting to see it where in the middle of this you know of the pandemic where we have these huge shortages of everything you have folks at home 3d printing face masks and ventilator parts in their garage you know that that we kind of you know the 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 vast majority of people despite 
being able to ignore things for a comically long amount of time, when push comes to shove, we do have the power and the resiliency to band together and to help each other. You bring out the extremes of humanity. When, when things are the worst, humanity can be and parts of humanity will be at its best. It'll, some of it will also be at its worst, but that's when we really shine. We shine brightest when things are the worst. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the, the good Terminator movies in sort of introducing this concept, but also riding the balance between making that sort of what it's about and not turning it into like this walking, like the, this this power fantasy of of like, yeah, I could I could totally survive the apocalypse and be, you know, badass and awesome and cool, is it always gives a very personal human cost to what ignoring things up until now leaves us with. Because one of the things that Dark Fate really accomplishes very well is, like the first Terminator movie, is it introduces you to this world and these characters and then says, some of these people that you like are gonna die. And you know, again, you know, current year argument, like we're we're going through this as like various states are are experiencing pandemic deaths because we don't have the power to meet our current needs. And, and it's it's really bad. But, uh, you know, again, like this, this is also like the cost of what not paying attention to this sort of thing brings. And it, it it allows this movie to to have an air of tragedy about it that makes it not seem realistic, but makes the emotional and thematic beats that it's hitting feel at least genuine. Mm. It, it earns them. Exactly. And it, yes. it does take a very different standpoint from the end of Rise of the Machines, which was <laughs> as long as we can protect John Connor and his breeder pet. <clears throat> Um, is going to be okay uh, because ultimately this one boy gets to pass his genetic material down. He's a special the, boy. I know, clearly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the atom bomb couldn't stop him. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, the whole point of this is leaning much more into that the only thing that will save mankind is cooperation. And I think we can all see the relevance yeah. of that right now. Did you get that off a bit? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Guinness extra cold. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is jumping ahead, but the the beat specifically where where Danny is helping the other the other humans up after she's you know like beat them up a little bit. But then the mm-hmm. point is is not that you know she is the strongest, toughest person who can kick everybody's ass. It's she's the person who is going to help you back to your feet no matter what you were right. about to do to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have things to say with regards to how Danny. Uh, Danny's arc goes through the film that relate directly to that, but I will save that. There's a Danny question coming up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so let's start with our Terminator. What makes Rev Nine so scary? He he seems like a human. Like he he's pretty good at interacting with people when he walks into the auto factory. Like mm. you buy him as just another person. Unlike, and I think I said this to Karu when we were watching it. Like. It's very, it's a very stark contrast to Robert Patrick, who like never felt like he always felt a little bit wrong. Yeah, he was a shitty infiltrator unit. On um, uh, ultimately, <laughs> like if I saw that dude walking around, even if there were no dogs barking at him, I would still be like, yeah, that dude's not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stay away from him. There, there's something mm-hmm. is wrong there. 
And but this guy, no, this guy feels this guy feels like a regular guy. He can do a little bit of joking. He can be, you know, come off as a little bit friendly, at least enough to, you know, someone you would wouldn't give you pause if you passed him on the street. Yeah, when he did the smile and the Danny, of course, in Spanish, that that yeah, it, that felt really kind of almost warm. And if I were the person who was talking to him, I'd be like, okay, yeah, this probably is one of Danny's friends, even though he screwed that up. Yeah. <laughs> he is very well programmed with his social camouflage. He switches his mm-hmm. accent depending on who he's talking to. He'll adjust the uh, the cadence of his voice and the content of his small talk yeah. depending on who he's talking to in order to make that person feel comfortable. Yeah. That's what There's really a... threw me. When, when he comes out and talks yeah. to those guys in the 10-gallon Texan hats and he just immediately lapses <laughs> into a Texan accent. Like, not, right. it doesn't even register on his face like that I need to change myself. And just, you know, the, the thing about his small talk, he talks just enough for them to be relaxed, mm-hmm. but not so mm-hmm. much that it's like, you know, may I have your earthling car? <laughs> <laughs> he knew exactly what to say, too. You know, he's... He's in there and he says something like, you know, I'm not going to lie. I prayed more in the last five minutes than I have my whole life. Yeah. And and that's exactly what you would expect a, you know, Border Patrol agent in Texas to say. Yeah. There's there's an aspect of him being played by Gabriel. Luna, and there, there's this is something I want to tread very carefully on because this is not a subject that I feel I have personal authority to speak on but the fact that as you say he he code switches and has social camouflage and the fact that it is him playing this character who is adopting the uh the the social mannerisms and the authority of a uh, let's not put too fine a point on it a a fascistic um white nationalist agency like the 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 border patrol and and ice and all of that that it represents in hunting down a a woman of mexican descent who is crossing a border illegally there's there's so much that's loaded there and it makes him feel personally threatening while also thematically dangerous in a way that we haven't really seen a terminator feel like traitorous before like mm-hmm. he's he's just human enough and relatable enough and there's just enough surface similarity to danny that that him doing all the things that he does specifically once he adopts that that uniform which i mean you know terminator has never been subtle there's a reason that in the early 90s <laughs> robert patrick was a los angeles cop yeah a yeah. white yeah. a white los angeles cop um <laughs> But yeah, there's there's just it it feels traitorous and wrong. Like this is this is not something that should be happening, and yet he is just so he he does it so easily. So he he both feels more at home in a in a human environment, but also so alien because it feels like he's he's corrupting this these interpersonal relationships that we hang so much societally on. He's also physically scary as hell. Like, oh, yeah. he's, he's faster than any other Terminator. He moves, he's more agile than any other Terminator. He uses his, his liquid, the liquid portion of him, uh, better than Robert Patrick ever did. Like with the spikes coming out of his back all over the place and, and just, it, it's, it's 
you watch him like the scene in Border Patrol, like that was legitimately terrifying. Yeah, and that, that two bladed weapon, that two bladed hand thing, mm-hmm. that was amazing. And just when he gets uh, uh, dogpiled by a bunch of guards, and it's what uh, Grace says about like you put a hundred cops out. between you and a Terminator, and what you get is a hundred dead cops. It's mm-hmm. like he's just a b- 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 when he says my whole body's a, a weapon, mm-hmm. he means he's it. He means it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a dryness to his humor yeah. as well. And he's- and he, he- proves it two minutes ago yeah, and then he's like metal hip sorry about that mm. <laughs> yeah and he's well, representative of as Pat- uh, robert patrick was in t- in judgment day of a system which is not best placed for human interests that it's a, a system that operates with authority but not compassion mm. and that's what skynet stroke legion is and he is terrifying you guys are absolutely right but at the same time like when he's just walking around he does he looks like a normal person mm-hmm. his physicality is a normal mm-hmm. person he's yeah. a average sized me- looks like an average sized mexican guy yeah it's it's like if uh, they had cast um What's his name? Uh, Lance Hendrickson as the Terminator in the original, which mm. was the original concept. He's supposed to be an infiltrator. He's supposed to be able to slip in unnoticed, mm-hmm. and nobody's not noticing a million Arnold Schwarzeneggers <laughs> running around. Yeah, he can get lost in a crowd. Yeah. Listen to how he's almost chatty, but in such a way that the person he's talking to won't take exception to him and will wave him on. But he's personable enough that they're likely to give him exactly what he wants. And at the mention of being a soldier in Afghanistan, it both excuses the metal hip and to a degree pulls rank or at least implies veteran status to the guard, almost like a dog posturing to make other dogs bow down. But he doesn't do it in an angry, abrasive way. He's very quietly confident. If anything, he's not creepy enough, which makes him way scarier. He is the embodiment of what Kyle Reese originally described. It would appear Legion understands people more than Skynet ever did. And I'm wondering if this is because it has all of Facebook on it. Evening. Supposed to pick up a detainee, Danny Ramos. Please lock your weapon. Expect a big ping, brother. The whole body's a weapon. Save it for the ladies. Sorry. Metal hip. Two tours in Afghanistan. All right. Thank you for your service. So in the original Terminator, the thing coming after them was basically clothed like a punk and a street hood. uh, (laughs) But, you know, armed like a doomsday prepper with this kind of, you know, like, you know, the bodybuilder look to him. And it was just kind of, oh, God, what if someone like a strange man was after me? And it really just does boil down to a strange man. Whereas in, as you said before, the the, the fact that uh, Terminator 2 was made in close proximity, both geographically and time-wise, to the LA riots, uh, Robert Patrick being a cop at that point, he is effectively part of the system, which you're supposed to trust, but you've seen betray regular people. And because of context, we know that A, cops can't protect Sarah, and B, because of Sarah trying to bring down technology, 
The cops will be automatically mistrustful of Sarah, meaning they're not allies, they're enemies. So it's perfect that the T-1000 is one of them. Uh, and then in the third one, it's like, yeah, but what if it was a model and she was really hot? Because it's a stupid film <laughs> written by stupid people and made by stupid yeah. people. Uh, and yeah, then, and the fourth one takes the quite fascinating premise of what if I was a Terminator and didn't know it and does absolutely fuck all with it. It's a Transformers film. Um, and the mm-hmm. f- uh, fifth one <laughs> into outer space, sixth one made out of jam. Now, the fifth one, because it's John Connor, it's about the sort of betrayal of the system itself that you put so much faith in. And then it turns out that this thing you thought for all these years was going to help you turns out to be your greatest enemy, kind of like a president. Uh, and so that was remarkably prescient. Um, so while men might have been pissed that uh, Dark Fate killed John Connor, he was already dead. The Terminator killed him in the future in Terminator 3. The original written ending of Salvation was that John Connor dies. These were all films that wanted to take the risk of removing this character that we rely upon, but didn't have anything better to put in his place. Or at least didn't trust that they did. They had already taken John as far as they could go with this series. I'm sure we'll see him again. In the meantime, you also had Cromarty in uh, the uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles, and the whole concept there was about the idea of questioning himself as a machine, and they actually kind of bring elements from all those previous films and and the TV show into Dark Fate. There's just little bits here and there, like they, they, the scriptwriters, mm-hmm. including David Goyer, who I am nothing but disapproving of most of the time he was actually he and billy ray were really on point this time they actually had something to say and they didn't over egg the pudding there wasn't that kind of come with me if you want to live ah i think the only slightly misplaced line is when sarah connor says i'll be back and it's like yeah okay because (laughs) that works so much better later when carl says and I won't be back. And you're not laughing at that point. That's such a better line. Like, we could have done without Sarah saying it and then walking away like it ain't no thang while things explode behind her. Even though, like, she's tough as nails. But mm-hmm. the it, this feels like the sum totality of everything Terminator could have been in the last 28 years, like, honed to this needle point. I got to tell you, I was so nervous when i watched the end of the like when i watched the first trailer and mm-hmm. i saw the credits and i saw david s goyer yeah. on there i was like oh god yeah. but i i am loath to give him credit for anything mm-hmm. which is why i'm not going to now i'm <laughs> that willie ray remote rewrote most of his stuff to make it more <laughs> human about the only david goyer thing that uh, was kept in this script was the name rev nine and the idea that in the future, there is another not Skynet making not Terminators and a not John Connor as the human savior. Okay. That's really about it. So don't get, don't get too praiseworthy of the guy. He'll get a big head and write another Superman movie. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. I need that. Well, I, I, won't, that. I won't uh, praise him, but I also won't um, admonish him. Uh, also, someone uh, named Justin Rhodes uh, was a uh, contributory for the uh, screenplay. And, and the fact that it was directed by Tim Miller, um, most definitely the best director we've had since James Cameron working on a Terminator oh, sure. project. Yes, oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would go one further and say that Tim Miller is the perfect director to do what Terminator needed to do mm. in order to 
be a, a good Terminator movie in the modern day because, like you said, Alex, it's not just that, like, Dark Fate takes elements from previous Terminator films that worked and uses them better. So it's like, oh, no, we can't depend on John anymore because he's evil. No, we just killed him. And we've yeah. got, like, a younger a younger heroine. We have an older Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it, it takes all these. But in addition to that, I think the, the genre and dealing with genre in Terminator is tricky because you can't just make a Terminator movie in the same genre as the previous Terminator movie. And a lot of Terminator movies tried that. That was T2's to T3's problem. Terminator 1 is a sci-fi horror movie that was very in line with what was going on during the 80s and so was able to be kind of the ultimate example of that. Terminator 2 is the peak example of late 80s, early 90s, super big action movie craziness. And Dark Fate is a superhero movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, that, yeah. and so Tim Miller is is perfect for that because he understands, okay, we have to do things with Terminators in film language that we haven't seen before. How do we do that? Okay, we have Lady Captain America going back in time Thank to fight you for saying that. And name is Danny, isn't it too? Uh-huh. Yeah. Huh? And and you even have the way her her abilities are structured. She basically has to recharge herself with the yellow sun, except you know it's it's medicine. But like you you have all these very clear rules and and established things that are familiar to the superhero genre, but they still feel just enough tweaks to be Terminatory that it feels like a Terminator tone movie, hmm. but then it also does something that you haven't seen a million other Terminators do. Like, wh- what are you going to do with the car chase in Terminator 3 that makes it any different than the car chase in Terminator 2? Hmm. It's just more of the same. This does something just enough different that it feels vital. Every hit in this movie, it was filmed like it hurt. Hmm. Like, <laughs> I, uh-huh. I was feeling every time Grace, every time she goes up against that Terminator, mm-hmm. like, I can feel her damage. And especially the one that came to mind the most was when, um, I believe it was she crashed the truck and went, like, she jumps out of the truck, I think it was. Anyway, she landed on the highway. Mm-hmm. And I felt like every roll there, I was like, oh, that had to hurt the poor stunt person. Well, the first thing she does when she arrives in our universe is fall off a bridge and hit every bar on the way down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't often suggest you guys listen to a bunch of violent-sounding sound effects, like really harsh impacts, but take a moment to just absorb how important the soundscape is. For a Terminator film. This is when Grace first confronts the Rev-9. And honestly, this and the one with the chain at the end are my two favourite Terminator fights in the whole franchise. may not even have known it at the time, but what this is reinforcing for the audience 
is the pile driver bang sound from the original Brad Fidel scores. This industrial factory symphony. I think they um, they took their cues from Captain America and the Winter Soldier insofar as how dangerous the Winter Soldier himself, he based on the Terminator with by way of Robocop, would mm-hmm. feel like going up against. So that there's this constant that rather than you that Grace being the hero that has to battle him, it's more the you know, I must protect you, the very vulnerable human, gives it this constant running tension, which honestly it feels like they didn't even really manage to sustain that throughout T2. There's a lot more sort of talky stuff in the middle, and John seems like he's less in danger. It's much more going back to the very original first Terminator film where Sarah is constantly exposed. Mm. Yeah, relentlessness is yeah. how I've, I've put mm. it. And that's how the first one feels. You've got, it's there in the music, it's there in the, in the distant shots of the highway that just goes on and on and on and doesn't seem to stop. Mm things inevitably deteriorating from vehicles to Carl to Grace herself. Everything is gradually bleeding away and there's just this sort of, like I said, relentless inevitability about the direction that things are going in. As defences are being eroded. It helps uh, that you've got the director of Deadpool and the composer of Mad Max Fury Road to give you that (laughs) relentlessness and the knack for interpersonal dialogue. Yeah, um, I'm really glad that you made the Force Awakens uh, metaphor or the, yeah. the comparison there, because that's what I kept thinking the whole time I was watching the movie was like, this could be this franchise's Force Awakens. And then when no one else went and saw it, I, I was just sort of bitterly thinking this could have been the franchise's <laughs> Force Awakens. You could have <laughs> had both. Um, (laughs) if either Genesis hadn't happened or if we had pushed this movie off another five or ten years I think we could have had that I know that they might have been worried about you know not having Linda Hamilton at that time or not having Arnie at that time uh, yeah because they're they're both in their 60s at this point but uh, yeah I, I think that it could have it would have done a lot better with a few more years between Alternately, this might have been the final stretch of cinematic landscape for a while where we could get coming apocalypse movies. Now following the pandemic, after a long dry period, Hollywood's either going to make nothing about the end of the world or everything about the end of the world. Or at least films predicated upon a sense of desperation and lack of resources. I feel like that's going to be the zeitgeist. Scenarios where America has to be pulled back together after disaster. There's certainly going to be a lot of disapproval for the betrayal in our governments. The billionaires who stood by and did absolutely nothing while the world starved and lay in sick beds gasping for breath. They will be symbolically immortalized as the idle villains, while the working class hero will be something we see again and again and again. Just ordinary people working really fucking hard will see the self-sacrifices of the human spirit encapsulated over and over again. Maybe some much-needed hero worship for our emergency services, our medical workers, our doctors, our porters, a blockbuster about a guy who delivers groceries. The films we watch, even the blockbusters, sometimes especially the blockbusters, are mirrors to how we're feeling. If you think about the 2000s, the dark, gritty, desaturated, 
depressing action thriller was a response to the age of terror we were living through. The first Spider-Man and X-Men related dynasties of superhero movies were a response to 9-11, as we found we had a desperate need for heroes who could rescue us and provide a moral fixed point. The MCU was the second wave of that. Fuck, they're still pulling down skyscrapers in New York-style cities. In our movies, they still haven't gotten over 9-11 yet, and it's blockbuster recreation on screen. Now New York has a lot more to worry about than two buildings coming down. Okay, so question three, with particular regard to the internment camp that we see here, they're called detainees, the cops and the military, and we can invoke the other films and the show at this point. What are the politics of the Terminator series? I think we touched on these back in 2015, but it's worth re-examining now in the wake of Dark Fame. I think one of the most important elements is actually in how the Rev-9 himself operates, and it's it feeds into, again, why he is so terrifying. He is effectively the uh, the T-800 and the T-1000 mm. multiplied together. With elements of the Terminatrix. Remember how she logged into the internet? Yeah, yeah, with the, the network phone. capability, yeah. But w- when you've got those, it's, it's most prominent when you get the parts where the exo-rev and the endo-rev separate and are both fighting mm. independently of each other. Because um, then you've effectively got two Terminators. Exactly. But what yeah. is, the way it seems to come across is uh, if you combine thug with authority, mm. sweet Jesus run. Yeah. So to get that, you'd almost have to have a a leader who uh, would appeal to both thugs and uh, a more super right-wing authority who want any excuse to to stamp down on people weaker than they are. Funny that. I don't want to kill anyone. I just don't like bullies. If you look at the deleted scenes, there's a couple of bits where um, the Rev-9 tracks Danny and company using the internet, and it it almost that one one of them he's just sitting in a house and it made me feel like he was almost detached from the action from the chase and it was all I'm I'm glad they cut that scene out because it almost put a question mark regarding why is he even chasing them at all because he got in touch with the authorities and said hunt them down and shoot them and it made me realize that a terminator could feasibly just get a laptop and sit in a shed for the duration of the chase and just turn all technology against our heroes. It would be a lot less dynamic, and I'm very glad that that wasn't this, but it's an idea for later on. That feeds into one of my theories about this this series is um, what it tries to say politically and uh, thematically about society is that Treating people like people and like they matter is always going to be necessary to your survival. Uh, We see that happen time and time again, is recognizing personal worth is what gives you allies and gives you a chance at fighting, you know, against whatever is trying to sweep you away. And systems that commodify people and turn them into something less than people will always end up working against humanity Mm -hmm. because that happens 
in all three of the good Terminator movies, you you have a place that is supposed to be either safe or or an institution that is supposed to protect and serve and grant benevolent authority. A police is station, always... Pescadero uh, Asylum, mm-hmm. and uh, the internment camp. Yep, and it always gets corrupted and turned into a death trap. Yeah, mm-hmm. as the Terminator just turns up and takes what he wants. Yeah. yeah, one subtle thing that I think Tim Miller did in uh, the detention center scene that I quite liked is that even though he makes it clear that uh, the Terminator is a threat, he also makes it clear that ICE are the bad guys here as well. And mm-hmm. when the Terminator is going through just cutting people left and right, he is only slicing those ICE motherfuckers up. He, is not, he does not actually kill any of, the de- any of the detainees who are running out of his way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's only a, a focused on those that are, yeah. that are in his way. He's not just indiscriminately murdering everyone yeah and i think that's a meta choice that tim miller made in that we can because he's killing people on screen we can see how dangerous he is Mm -hmm. but tim miller doesn't want him going through and cutting uh migrants Mm -hmm. who you know migrants and refugees to death like exploitation Mm -hmm. exactly this way he's you know he is only attacking the people with the weapons and the armor who are again established as clearly bad guys speaking of the deleted scenes there's actually a lot higher of a body count in terms of like either people related to danny or innocent bystanders that i really feel trimming that back helped this film Mm -hmm. feel dangerous but not cruel yeah it's it's worth pointing out that the in, in the ICE Center, another thing that it does really well is highlight the fact that even without the the Terminator coming in at them, even without the Rev-9, they are still in danger. That humans can also be dangerous mm-hmm. because the the ICE Center, the detention center, you know, Danny keeps like trying to talk to them and say – she at one point she's, you know, outright saying like – you are in danger. And the ice officer is like, no, honey, I'm in processing. And she's just, she's looking at this person with, as if they are not people. Mm-hmm. And even with that, so even if the Rev-9 hadn't shown up, it would have been tense and it would have felt dangerous. Miller behind the scenes uh, said something along the lines of, and I'm not uh, trying to uh, cast anybody as the villain here. These uh, the the people in the camp. It's a terrible situation, and they're stuck here. But the people who are the border patrol are just doing their jobs, and it feels like that's absolutely what you have to say on paper to make sure that this does not become a hugely controversial move. However. Danny and company would not have been detained and would not be put in this level of this ridiculous danger were it not for this precise institution which has gotten so much worse in the past few years. This is the first action film, sci-fi film, dystopia, that actually straight up showed it, just balls to the wall, like, this is uh-huh. what's going on right now. It felt like this could be happening down the road if you live in Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think as they well, literally do family separation. Like she's she's trying to say, oh, it's my granddaughter. She needs she has mm-hmm. a medical, and it's like, no, f off. We don't yes. care. Notably, it's also the first Terminator film to take us out of California. They were in L.A. and San Francisco in Terminator Genesis, and ruined a post-apocalyptic California in Salvation. And this reminds me of something I said to Sharon regarding... We were talking about how Marvel could update the X-Men for the modern day. What kind of racial profiling motif could they draw Magneto from 
in a contemporary context, since seemingly nothing matches up with the Nazis and their concentration camps and what we would all agree is maybe the worst time in history regarding humans doing inhumane things to other people. And I originally said the Rwandan genocide or some other thing that happened in a far-off country get us a black magneto, but that started to weigh on me because it would feel detached and the average person doesn't know exactly what went on there. And then I realized more recently, have Magneto be Mexican. Have him separated from his family. Have him played by Javier Bardem. And in another world, I feel like Disney would have the backbone to do that. To directly challenge this horrendous, monstrous treatment of people that is going on right now. Families scarred and separated. People afraid in their own homes of ICE agents battering the door down. Of being taken away. A generation of children growing to adulthood with only faint memories of their real parents. Because this was handled with inhumane incompetence. Stoking the fires of racial hatred. What better way now to exemplify the very worst of mankind. The hate and fear and prejudice and scaremongering and scapegoating that exists in the dark heart of the X-Men books. But after watching Maleficent 2, Frozen 2, The Rise of Skywalker, I feel like that's not going to happen. They're not gonna go for the throat regarding what the X-Men could mean now. Disney may be lightly progressive, in a baby steps, sometimes on the money, sometimes kind of patronizing way. But what they rarely do is stick their neck out and make a fierce point that nobody in charge wants to hear. Fuck, they promised to make Captain Marvel 2 less political than the original. There's barely any politics in the original. With Hollywood currently in upheaval, decisions are going to have to be made when we return to a new normal regarding our behavior to each other as a species over recent years and how to address that in storytelling. And God help us if it is ignored. To expand on uh, the whole making people like machines is bad thing as well they enhance that and build on it by doing the reverse in both judgment day and here and also it was one of my favorite elements of the sarah connor chronicles the exploration of but if you treat a machine like a human it that's that's a positive thing it can become more human the fundamental element here is not what uh, individuals basic natures are it's what you give them the opportunity to be if all you will let your people be as machines you will wreck them but if you let your machines be intelligent and compassionate and show them how to learn that then they can learn it just as well as we can 
I've written well, down that uh, notes of war is terrible. That seems to be an abiding thing in the uh, Terminator series. Uh, but some, there's a, a sense that it feels inevitable, but it's something that we want to put an end to. Uh, it strips away our humanity. And if you make yourself like a machine, you lose your soul. So that's very much in line with what's been said already. Uh, and But also that what Sharon just said, machines can gain something like a soul through deeds that make them feel human. If they start to think about what it is to be human, they start to effectively become human. That that achieves a, a form of synthesis. But also it has this original James Cameron style, killing is wrong. However, big guns though, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> There is that. <laughs> Which There's, is very Metal Solid as well. Style. <laughs> There's something about James Cameron's politics, or at least the way his politics appear through his films, that always makes me smile a little bit because I always get the feeling that he thinks he's being politically... Neutral? Maybe not neutral, but just the things he's saying are so freaking obvious. Mm. They're not really politics because who the hell could possibly argue with them? It's difficult to call James Cameron a hippie as well, with all those big guns for and explosions. Well, and yes, things. there is that. And it reminds me of a friend of mine who describes herself as a left-wing gun nut. <laughs> like she is progressive in everything except for gun rights. She's she really likes those, but otherwise, yes, yeah, super progressive. And even then, you know, stop. But still, left-wing gun nut. That seems like James Cameron to me. Okay, question four. I've got any more oh. on this. Yes, sorry. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, just wanted to tag in something that that I picked up on that. I, I think this is the only thing, as far as I'm aware, this is the only time this has really been touched on in any Terminator movie. But, okay. like, they were clearly hitting on reproductive rights just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because the, when when uh, Grace wakes up and, like, they had scanned her and, you know, whatnot, and she's like, Did I say you could look at my private parts? Where do they take the new prisoners? They're called detainees, and we... They're taken to the south end holding area for profit. And I was like, oh, oh, there's there's some serious politics there. Second question, completely unrelated, on these uh, children who are being separated from their families as they come across the border. Uh, the Attorney General earlier today said that uh, somehow there's a justification for this in the Bible. Uh, where does it say in the Bible that it's moral uh, to take children away from their mothers? Uh, I'm not aware of the Attorney General's comments or uh, what he would be referencing. Uh, I can say that uh, it is very biblical to enforce the law. Uh, that is actually repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. However, this uh, hold on, Jim, if you'll let me finish. Uh, again, I'm not going to comment on the attorney-specific comments that I haven't seen. That's not what I said, and I, I know it's hard for you to understand, um, even short sentences, I guess, But and please don't take my words out of context. But the separation of illegal fam- alien families is the product of the same legal loopholes that Democrats refuse to close, and these laws are the same that have been on the books for over a decade, and the president is simply enforcing them. Policy to take children away from their parents. Uh, can it's you a imagine moral the policy to follow and enforce the law. When they come across the border, yeah. they're with their parents, and then suddenly they're pulled away from their parents. Why is the government doing this? Because it's the law, and that's what the law states. And the law... You're right, it doesn't have to be the law, and the president has actually called on Democrats in Congress to fix those loopholes. When you treat humans like they aren't human, humanity dies. 
Especially and- when they're combining it with the untangling saving the savior of the human the human race with oh but we've got to protect her womb and the unborn child that she's yes. going mm-hmm. to have someday i love yeah. that sarah is so jaded and pissed off that that was her role and she fucking right. failed mm-hmm. at it well she there's a there's a moment in the the first film where she sarcastically refers to herself as the mother of the future mm. and that's not the role that she was allowed to have in the end mm-hmm. danny however is in a in a much more of a real sense the mother of the future rather than the mother of an individual who gets to come along and do something special right i've got a uh, for question four uh, my, my the question is can Mackenzie davis please be the new captain america i mean it's it's not a, <laughs> See, I, 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 thing to I have ask. a much more simplified version of that it just says Mackenzie davis omg <laughs> So the actual question is, how does Grace elaborate upon the Kyle Reese human protector role? She has more context and foreknowledge to what her relationship is to the person she's going back to protect. Um, I... I don't want to get into how, how we define the relationship between Grace and Danny, but I, I have two blistering hot takes about Terminator Dark Fate. (laughs) One is that Tom Holkenborg delivers the best score of the entire series with his Dark Fate score. Mm-hmm. And two is that I actually feel that the relationship between Danny and Grace is a little bit stronger than the one between Kyle and Sarah because it gets to have the, both characters in their future selves having full knowledge of what's going to happen. Kyle doesn't necessarily – he doesn't know that he's John's father. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that he's the father of the future, and that's – an interesting wrinkle to play with but this makes it very clear especially in the deleted scenes they they show you like her about to be sent back with danny with that like super hot short future hair by the way um (laughs) yeah commander danny is wow um damn anyway uh but grace knows the score she knows she already knows who this person is and who who they mean to her and She's trying to walk this fine line between who she's going back to protect and what that person can and should be ready to understand and know. But she's she's not going in as blind as Kyle Reese is, and she's still 100% going to – she's still absolutely ready to die for this cause in a way that Kyle was as well, but it was – more open-ended as to, well, maybe there's a chance he'll survive. He just can't come back and he'll be stuck in the past. No, Grace knows she's dead because they both already saw it happen. And and it's, it's so it's in a much more informed choice. Mm-hmm. Kyle was in love with the idea of Sarah Connor, but Grace loves Danny because she's effectively her mother. She's going back to protect a loved one as opposed to as opposed to an abstract concept with which they are infatuated, which is what, you know, what Kyle was, you know, he stared at that photograph and he, you know, quote unquote, fell in love with Sarah, but he had never met her, didn't know anything about her. He just, he was in love with the idea of her. And the, the, the connection between Grace and Danny is immediately so much stronger because they already have that relationship going through, even if this version of Danny doesn't know it yet. 
Mm. Yeah, what uh, Kyle had was that he loved John. He was really into John. I died for John Connor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they almost showed that. I'm not even joking. They almost showed that in Genesis. It's just that uh, they were like, oh, we, we made some beer one time. And oh, it still exploded. And if, if only they hadn't cast two incredibly mediocre actors, that could have been something. And if only the <laughs> yeah. director hadn't been Alan Taylor. And if only it had been written well. And if only it had never existed. <laughs> a lot of it, was... but like, the, but that's the thing. Except like, for that one motorcycle callback, I love that yeah. scene. I mean, if, if, <laughs> like, what we can interpret from a lot of the other Terminator fiction is that as soon as John found Kyle, he was like, "Right, I am adopting you. You are my new best bud." And then he, John, made sure they had a really close relationship from that point on. The fixation on the special blood in Terminator Salvation gets transferred from John himself to Kyle, who he puts everything else aside to go and rescue, risking everyone else's lives because he needs to be, he needs so desperately to save his future father and then send him back in time to plant the seed and die. This franchise has issues. But John's gone now. That's never going to happen. And At the beginning of this film... The digital spectre of Eddie Furlong is gunned down before our eyes. And I remember in the cinema thinking I knew this was going to happen and crying my eyes out and thinking this is terrible. This is exactly what needed to happen. It's... Mm -hmm. It, it was the same as when Han dies in The Force Awakens. I was just, this is terrible. This was exactly what needed to happen to mm-hmm. move this series forward. I was openly dismissive of the concept of doing this movie when it was first announced. I was like, oh, they're making another Terminator? They're, this is dumb. It'll be terrible. And right up until the point where people actually started seeing it, you know, I was just figuring, oh, it's going to be another piece of crap, just like all the other Terminator movies after T2. The minute John Connor dies, mm-hmm. it was, like you said, Alex, is both incredibly painful, but it was like, oh, this is going to be good because it does what Terminator movies need to do, which is say fuck it to the lore. Like the second Terminator movie actively fucks with the first movie's lore mm. and yeah. all the other movies have been trying to like do like cutesy poo things with the lore and <laughs> make it more... And, and that's not what you need. <laughs> you can tell wrong. Brendan has a small child. <laughs> yeah. Is this cutesy poo? <laughs> it but is, Daddy. To, to your point, I, I 100% agree. Uh, I mentioned being, you know, really apprehensive when I saw, you know, David Goyer's name on the trailer, mm. even though I was, you know, the trailer looked good, but every ounce of that apprehension evaporated five minutes into this movie when when they made that choice and i and and i knew like oh shit they're taking risks like they're they're making choices in this movie and i am here for it i'll be honest i saw that trailer and thought okay and then the second time i thought this is gonna be good this is gonna be really good (laughs) and the third fourth fifth sixth time i was watching it just double (laughs) double bill that five minutes later (laughs) <laughs> that and the Us trailer, back to back, over and over again. Mm-hmm. I was like, I feel like it's the way that Sarah is introduced with this reverence, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I'm a grizzled old lady. What are you gonna do about it? As opposed to, <laughs> like, you know, ultimately, it's like Laurie in Halloween 2018. Yeah, 
I, I think yeah. that I remember seeing you know production photos of Jamie Lee Curtis holding a shotgun and Linda Hamilton holding a rocket launcher. It was like this is the new energy battle crone. <laughs> I love yes. it so much. Absolutely. And I, Sarah, I want that crossover, which was grand, grandmothered by um, Mad Max Fury Road. Of course, mm. the, uh, the 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 many mothers. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I think, honestly, just the, the, the choice of music, the, the weirdly quiet, the, 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 ah, like, this is actually quite special, rather than just, I mean, it is technically, it's a Bjork song being sung in a slow register, but the original <laughs> song was pretty slow and creepy anyway, but there's a sort of a gathering feel to it, it was like, you've oh. seen this happen before, but something's different this time, and... Uh, it really, uh, honestly, that trailer is actually very exemplary of the final version of the film because you get that female energy, you get that Mackenzie Davis just like straight up like blocking those flying bars in slow motion and just oh, that was so awesome. It, it has that potential energy there, and I'm honestly just surprised that people didn't watch that and go, "I am going to go see that," because. It was completely different from the trailer for Terminator Genesis, which looked terrible, and the trailer for uh, um, uh, Terminator Salvation, which looked terrible. And if you can remember it, back in 2003, the trailer for Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, which I watched and went, oh, this is going to be so not James Cameron. Yeah. It got bumblebeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to get bumblebeed, which is to have a bunch of numpties work on films for ages, and then eventually they give it to someone who actually knows what they're doing, and nobody gives a shit because you poisoned right. the well. Yep. I was just that was that was the exact words I was going to use. That the well is poisoned now. <sighs> okay. So um. Can, oh yeah, can we take for just one second? Can we also? appreciate the the fact that you know you mentioned tons and tons of you know the the big female energy in the trailers and in this movie but i didn't feel like particularly mackenzie davis was ever sexualized oh no like yeah no that's... she's there she's she's there and she's like badass and she's important and you know you you feel for her and you sympathize with her but at no point are are we are the camera leering at her mm -hmm. which i really appreciated they took I, the cue from sherry road there, yeah for sure. I, mm -hmm. I am gonna put a little caveat in there she is not sexualized for, for the men. male gaze yeah which she might be why, horny as hell <laughs> which might be why it's it's yeah. not made with a kind of hey guys we got you a present it's, it's it I'm doesn't not, do that mm. I, that's not to say, like, I, I want to go on record not to say that she was not sexy, but she was not, at no point was she there for the sole purpose of, look at this hot woman. Mm. There was no sleaze and, in there. And neither, yes. was, neither was Danny, and definitely neither was Sarah. There's, mm. there's right. no sense in this of um, somebody here is, is there for eye candy, which, uh, Christina Loken? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Entirely like, was inflatable tits. Well, what are they for? Doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. it's the antithesis of that. It's taking the core and the spirit of the characters and mm. saying, "This is what you're connecting with. This is the uh, the energy that's going to bring you in and carry you on the journey that they take." 
it's less sleazy than the Captain America films, which quite often, and the Thor films, which like linger on the chests of the many Chrises. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes I, do. I will confess. Not that there's any complaints, but uh, I mean, <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, hey, but that that is not for the male gaze. No, exactly. Right. That's for the female gaze. In the film sense. Hmm. Yeah, but I, to to what you were talking about, uh, Sean, like the the bit where like Danny's got her head in Grace's lap and Sarah just kind of gives them a bit of a look like that's, that's definitely not, you know, sexualized, but they're, they go out of their way to, to show the, the tenderness and care between characters mm-hmm. and to, and to idealize that visually yeah. uh, in the, in the film's visual language, which is, you know, like Jesse said, it's in stark contrast to, the film introduces Grace by throwing the male gaze out the window because you have a naked lady fall out of the sky and beat up a bunch of cops while she's naked, mm-hmm. but they film it in the way where it is absolutely about her power and speed and combat abilities when it would be so easy for a male director to just be like, whoa, look at this scenery, eh? Oh, she's <laughs> naked and she's fighting, eh? Yeah. So the it's scene also, where the lady gets worse. dressed in Dead or Alive and uh, like beats up a guy and throws her arms up as her bra falls out of the air in slow motion onto her. It's yeah. worth. It's it's also worth pointing out, like on that same note, that in the scene that Brendan just described, where she you know falls out of the sky and then beats up a bunch of cops, and when she takes clothes, she takes the man's, she takes the mm. guy's clothes, yes. yeah, and she does the same thing again in the you know in the ice in the detention center when she takes out there's a there's a male uh, officer and a female officer, and she takes the man's clothes, his mm. uniform, skinny pockets, mm-hmm. well, absolutely, yeah. and I and. Alex, you mentioned this. I love the fact that Mackenzie Davis is so tall that she oh has my this, God. this it, the way that she is able to interact with Linda Hamilton, this metaphorical giant of 80s <laughs> cinema, <laughs> and be like towering over her. And Linda like, Hamilton's yeah. like growling at her. still punch you through a window. <laughs> she's, she's not actually that tall. She's only 5'8". They must have had, really? had her stood on a box or something because like, they've, they've overly emphasised her height. Yeah. At one point she, when she talks to the border guard and says, where did you put the prisoners? They're called detainees. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that woman was sitting down or something, but she, like Mackenzie is like big barda huge mm. at that point. She, she, yeah. looked like, she looked like she was towering over everybody and like watching the movie. I had to go look it up because I thought the same thing. I'm like, is mm. Mackenzie Davis six feet tall? <laughs> but yeah, she's not. She's 5'8". Yeah. What I just taller than me. Yeah, uh, one of the... One of the things um, about Mackenzie Davis, and specifically that first fight where she shows up and uh, kills all the cops and everything, um, is that she just knocked them all down. Knocked them all. I'm 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 being optimistic. Um, (laughs) So um, one of the things about that is that the actress actually did that legitimately in the nude. They offered her, you know, flesh-colored underwear, and she refused it. And I think that contributed both to Tim Miller's direction in trying to avoid that female gaze as mm. a respect issue, but also or that male that male gaze as you know just a respect issue. I'm not going to you know actually film my actress who has not agreed to this in advance that way, but also it comes across I think in her confidence as an actress, and it comes across in the character because she feels you know. She seems to feel very confident in her own body, and that works really well for the character who is 
also very confident in her own enhanced body. Mm. I, I apologize. Correction. She is taller than I thought. She's 5'10". Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Um, but She's going to be noticeable for a woman because that mm-hmm. is unusually tall for a woman. Yeah. And when you have three, when you have three women as primary cast, just mm-hmm. by comparison... I noticed that uh, in the behind-the-scenes stuff, she's kind of a goofball, but I also noticed that she's <laughs> goofball and very sincere. She was talking about her; um, she wanted to work out to embody a athlete and a soldier, not uh, you know because she just wanted to um, you know look good on screen, but because she wanted to be able to act like someone who had gone through all this stuff. So she was going through this, you know, ridiculous workout regime. And it wasn't so much about building her up to be this super muscle tower, but just her resilience and her ability to be able to do all this gymnastic athletic stuff. And she's like, so she brings authenticity and seriousness to the role and she's an authentic goofball behind the camera. (laughs) Yeah. But one of the things I love the most was that they effectively put lay down a hard magic system with the character of Grace insofar as every act of um you know, of, of exerting power drains her ridiculously it's uh, Lyra pointed out it's like Viola the uh, uh, magic caster in um uh, the yeah. princess thieves every time she uses a spell she gets weaker so she has to eat like the Flash does this as well. I think I got that uh, from from, mm-hmm. from the idea that Wally is constantly, uh, or, or uh, Barry is constantly mm-hmm. having to eat just to replenish his energy, even though it's not a one to one refueling. It's just it's a nice way of showing that there is not infinite amount of power that can come out of this uh, character. And, and, and the whole thing that she says about you either kill a Rev Nine in the first few minutes or you don't. And that's what mm-hmm. she, why she's been um, built to, like, she wanted to try and take him down, but then as soon as she can't take him down in that first go, she then goes into, we need to run, we need to hide, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which- as somebody who is, uh, is hypoglycemic in real life, mm-hmm. that crash felt very, very real yeah. and very yeah. familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same here. The, I think that as well builds on um, what we were saying earlier about Tim Miller directing this as a superhero movie and the qualities that he's able to bring to that is that if you're going to make a superhero character interesting you need to first set up their power set and then you need to set up their uh, their flaws, their weaknesses whatever it is that that hampers them and limits them and Mm -hmm. the, uh, the clear outline of this is what she can do but this is the consequence Mm. and that automatically builds tension into the story because every time you see her doing that kick-ass oh yeah we really want to see more of this but that Mm -hmm. means that she is going to really really hurt exactly and kyle in the original was a desperate man just like clinging (laughs) on and it was very much a (laughs) this would be you up against a terminator as a human being you know a bit more about it because you've got this prior knowledge but he's basically a human and he is horribly outmatched and the T-800 in T-2 is horribly outmatched by the T-1000, who is the superior sports car model mm-hmm. to his basic analogue truck. Yeah. And you, you you get the echo of, of Kyle's relationship with Sarah in Grace's relationship with Danny. Mm. Whether their mm. relationship in the future was a, a, a partnership relationship or not, which it might very well have been going by some of the dynamics, but the, the point that... Grace will absolutely put herself on the line for Danny. That is the whole purpose of her being there. 
that moment at the end when Danny says she's sorry and Grace says I'm not, that echoes mm-hmm. Kyle perfectly. Uh-huh. The other thing that they, they do in establishing what Alex says, you know, calls the, the hard magic system, which is, you know, a great way of putting it, um, is every time they show you a limitation or a weakness of grace, the relentlessness and the seeming unstoppability of the Rev-9 is that much more underlined. We get to see her crash very shortly after we realize the Rev-9 is two Terminators. That's fucking cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which is like the one time they've managed to do a a new thing with the Terminator basically since 1991 and have it seem like an interesting surprising thing of like oh we thought this mm-hmm. guy oh he's got a liquid metal we've seen liquid metal but oh oh one's driving the truck and one's shit and so oh, the the oh, yeah fuck. Oh, the fuck. more oh, fuck. exactly <laughs> and so the more they introduce you to details about not just Grace but then they bring in you know they bring in Carl and. And they show you, you know, how these just just Carl showing up with with the gray in his hair and looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now you realize that what we have is in various stages of obsolescence or disrepair or has very defined weaknesses, whereas the Rev-9 that we know of has none except for you just have to overpower it. And maybe if you get enough of the, you know, the Avenginators together then you'll be able to have a ma- enough manpower to do it that's the the only way that you have with with coping with this sort of thing because the more you learn about your allies the more you realize how vulnerable they are and how invulnerable your opponent is one thing that you mentioned about you know being like every time that that grace you know you get to see grace's limitations and that she very quickly you know has a lapse or has a failing one thing that i thought was a really smart decision was that every time grace falls down it's an opportunity for danny to step in and Mm. pick her up exactly where i was going to go with that i was thinking the same thing Mm -hmm. you got to see like the first time she crashes you know she you know danny puts her in the back of the car and grace even says like you can't drive and she says i'll figure it out so now we get to see she's she's smart and she figures things out. And then, you know, later when she falls down, this is the point where now Danny starts. She picks up the gun and she takes a little bit more initiative. And every time we see Grace drop a step lower, we see Danny take a step higher and, and grow a little bit more as a person to fill those gaps. Each and every time yeah. like that, it's an echo of... Right, Grace! On your feet, soldier! On your feet! From the original. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And there, there are several parallels in how they are activated as well. You've got that moment when Grace first turns up where she is woozy and she doesn't quite know what's going on. But when the cop grabs her arm, she is activated. Her mm. defense mechanisms mm-hmm. kick in and the zoom in on her eye shows you that this may not be entirely within her control. This is just something that gets set off because she's been immediately threatened. That's her superpower that this will activate under those circumstances. Danny's superpower, her innate one at this point, which hasn't yet been tempered with the, the progress of this story... Is resolving conflict? Is, she's, it's compassion. Her superpower is her compassion. She's the she's the mother in her little family. She's the, the mm-hmm. organiser, the secretary. She coordinates everybody. She's their alarm clock. She is 
the get shit done person. The, the, exactly, yep. but with, well, with tenderness and kindness and, and she's always carrying flowers and she's always bringing food. It's all about the nurturing. And she's, that moment when Grace first starts to crash in the car, Danny is absolutely sunken in grief at that point she's just found out that her father is likely dead as well she's seen her brother killed and not been able to go back to him her her grieving process is trying to kick in hard and it's being interrupted by the fact that they've got this uh, immediate threat to life that they have to get away from but as soon as she sees that grace needs her that's when her superpower activates that that proximity of somebody who needs me in the immediate right now that's when she steps up Sharon, I'm not sharing my screen. How are you reading my notes? <laughs> She's <laughs> she is Skynet. Well, literally, the first thing that we that that we see her protect Grace for is is because the the people trying to bug her are saying like, "We know you have food." Which ties directly back to the fact that Danny is always trying to make sure that her family has fucking food. Yeah. It, it's yeah. They, they just, I mean, there's there's a lot that they do with her character um, to really pay off that. There's also a bunch of really cool, like, just smaller setup and payoff things, just like with the, the fact that she can't drive at first. And at the very end, not only do they do the, we are visually establishing that these characters have a very close personal repartee with one person tosses the keys mid-walk, the other person catches them mid-walk, which is like the thing that you do in a buddy movie to show that the buddies are in sync. But you also have Sarah tossing Danny the keys because Danny can drive now. It's very significant that she is a Latina woman as well. There is a bit in The Princess Thieves where I make plain the subtext of the story. It becomes just straight-up text, no longer subtext. You know, when we first arrived in London, the Dwart, I mean, we were apprehensive as to the reactions of the humans. Certainly we dealt with their bar guest, but we were presenting them with an iron hand of governance. I wondered why they welcomed it so readily. I mean... Do they want to be so ultimately powerless in the course of their lives? That was until I realized the masterstroke of the Dukes. Do you know what it was? Tell me. It was bringing you with us. It will come as no surprise to learn that you are a disgust the Dwart. We in the gentry thought it was only us to begin with, but the greater population of Dwart citizens confirmed our feelings with a matching sentiment. In the years since you first plagued our realm, everywhere you have gone, the people who live in those lands develop this disgust as a natural reaction. And that means, of course, that the humans shared it. Your species inevitably dropped to the bottom of the ladder, and they accepted our supremacy because we had given them someone new to hate. I assure you, there is nothing more that a working man needs in this life than a few coppers from those higher than he a roof over his head, and someone who lives on his street that he can hate. Because, you see, without that detestable someone, the man has nowhere to direct his hatred than upwards. He must live to protect his family, and he needs an enemy to protect it from. We killed the bar guest, and you filled the black vacuum left behind. So I want to thank you here, today, warmly, sincerely, thank you for giving us England. You're welcome. You know what? We are welcome, aren't we? 
And what makes me even more amused is that I am sitting here, symbolic of the highest a person can climb in our society, a decorated military dwarf man, champion of the people of Skygrail, born into the lands of Telemoron. I stand above nearly all dwarf men who stand above all dwarf women who stand above all human men who stand above all human women who stand above all orca males and at the very bottom of the ladder barely able to separate themselves from the endless oceans of sludge beneath are the orca females you I'm curious as to how your people even get through the day do you hate rats or cockroaches with the same volition as we hate you we know what the bottom feels like and that every rung up that ladder feels better than the last. That's what keeps us going. <laughs> but of course, with so many others locked into place above you, you must surely realize that there aren't many rungs you can climb before you're stopped in your tracks. And we go from John Connor, a white male, to Danny, a Latina lady add to that on her competency um, is the fact that I really picked up on like the little bit with her boss mm-hmm. and the fact that it sounds like her brother's kind of a screw up. Mm-hmm. He's, he's an okay worker, but he's not you. She must be a hell of a good worker. Yeah. But like, to impress her boss that much. <laughs> there's a subtext there of uh, automization uh, coming in to, to replace people, and that is something that is a, of a, a fear right now, as, as people, mm-hmm. especially as the jobs uh, market is, is, uh, is thrown into turmoil by the pandemic. But um, automation is, is somewhere where we're going as a society, which, like, that's all, that was all Skynet was, the idea of machine automation being the thing that takes people out and it's almost like all of these jobs at the bottom that if we can get robots to do them all the people at the bottom of the cultural hierarchies are then left with fewer jobs to have to fight over but almost almost like we need a different society mm-hmm. that isn't centered around survival only being provided yeah. by work and yet, during the pandemic, we have seen billionaires doing precisely fuck all for anyone. While people of every colour, many of them immigrants, work their asses off to hold society together. When they say, Danny, you are the future, that's the thing that white men are so fucking scared of. The whole, they took our germs thing. It's, it's, it's the idea that they might be outmoded. So John Connor getting killed at the beginning and replaced by Danny is absolutely core to this story. When the world crumbles, and even the way we thought the world was going to crumble, crumbles. The one who's going to move us forward doesn't look like the white guy we were always told. Well, it's there. So many of them are are mediocre, not Mm -hmm. just... Not even so much because they don't have potential, but because they were handed everything and they didn't need to develop their potential. And they're terrified of someone who wasn't handed stuff and still managed to do a hell of a lot because it shows them up. And Danny is going to get no help at all from society, and that means every scrap of power she maintains has to come from within, has to come from her innate character. 
characters like this serve in underlining the lie of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, not that it can't happen, but that people in, uh, let's put it charitably, my position of straight white maleness tend to mm-hmm. t- tend to not like seeing other people do it because that means that it's possible you've just been too lazy to do it, that you know, you never had to actually pull yourself up by your bootstraps because so many people like who have never faced adversity say, oh, it's this great equalizer. And it's like, well, no, because you've never actually had to go through this stuff. These people who have and are thriving, contributing members to society do. And people hate them for proving the lie of I actually had to work for this because no, you didn't. Corporations well, n- run by white men are the first <laughs> to get bailed out of any crisis yep. to little mm-hmm. end. They don't have to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm. They are number right. one well, in even, the lifeboats. Even when they do, there's a difference between pulling yourself up by your bootstraps <clears throat> without any kind of hampering effect of the society around you and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps when somebody else is simultaneously trying to pull you down with a tractor chain. Yeah. By the way, this mm-hmm. doesn't apply to all of our white male listeners. I mean, y'all are cool. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, not, uh, if you're listening not, to this, it means you're at least curious about the uh, uh, the inequality. Well, not just that, but the fact that it gives lie to the fact that the whole phrase, the original use of that phrase was a joke. It's the fact that if you pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, you fall, fall over. Fall over. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not realistic. And the fact that that phrase has been turned into a supposed like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, you're you're working hard and you're doing your own thing. and You're taking care of yourself and blah, 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 is like it it gives extra, you know, extra lie to the fact that, no, that's not how people work. Mm hmm. And that's like so it makes it you know extra extra hard on those though the the white men that you're talking about that no you you got handed fucking everything you didn't actually work for anything. Random tangent: Have any of you seen uh, the movie Dodgeball with Ben Stiller oh, yeah. and Vince? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it reminds me of the uh, of, of his commercial. When he's mm. talking about, well, he's like, he's "Oh like, yeah, I, 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 built, I, yeah. I, I built this corporation with nothing but hard work, dedication, and a small two million dollar loan from my father, Earl Goodman." <laughs> <laughs> so you're here to protect her. What are you? Never seen one like you before. Almost human. I am human. Just enhanced, you know, increased speed and strength, thorium micro reactor. Which means I can rip your throat out if you piss me off, so don't. When are you from? 2042. Your turn. My name is Sarah Connor. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me. To stop the birth of my son, John. Leader of the Resistance. Which Resistance? The human resistance against Skynet. The AI that's trying to wipe us all out. I've never heard of it. Good. John and I changed that. We changed the future. 
saved three billion lives. <laughs> You're welcome. Where's your son now? Listen to the music. Tom Holkenberg is evoking the steel mill from the end of Terminator 2. Skynet had sent several Terminators to hunt him. One finally caught up with us and... carried out orders from a future that never happened. Since then, I hunt Terminators. And I drink till they black out. Enough of a resume for you. So what does Sarah's presence add to proceedings? Because she's different. We haven't seen this role filled in the same way in previous Terminators. The presence of Linda Hamilton is really important in this. She is a, a direct connective tissue to Judgment Day, especially in the fact that they use her intro. Mm -hmm. And she's... The way she's changed because her her future, inverted commas, no longer exists, and she's pleased about that because it means that she did what she set out to do, Mm -hmm. gives us um, a, a source of wisdom and experience for Danny that is at the same time incredibly sad and steel-tempered with anger. And this is what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about Danny's arc. Her, Her superpower being innate compassion is wonderful, but it's not enough. She is going to need that sense of um, fire, of of yeah, of fire, of hardened understanding that Sarah is able to bring her because Sarah herself is now um, a kind of a dead end. But the point is that she's able to pass that on to someone else, and then Danny gets to use those two elements together to put herself in the position that John previously was, but John was handling things in a very different way. His approach was uh, determination, we don't get knocked down and we fight back and we smash them. Whereas Danny's is much more about keeping everybody linked arms together and we do this together, we do this as one. Which, um, one of the things that... First of all, uh, just a bit of trivia that I thought was great was apparently Tim Miller had to keep telling Linda Hamilton to stop smiling when she was shooting those huge guns. (laughs) She was having so much fun with it. (laughs) Tim Miller was like... Mean face. Yes. Linda, Linda, Sarah is not that happy about this. (laughs) Um, Gun go boom. But But I also think that... um, I also think that it's important that she... Uh, be part of this film because she's um, showing this sort of the remnant of the last war. She's mm-hmm. like the, she's like those, um, and I don't know if this is actually mythical or not, or if this the people, the Japanese soldiers that didn't realize that World War Two was over. Mm-hmm. Still she's fighting like on one the Pacific of, Island, still uh, um, engaged yeah. in a siege with this imaginary enemy. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. And that's basically what she's doing. She's still fighting a war that no longer exists and never happened. So and this is embodied in the line at the beginning when she's cradling Jo oh. No. No. Once I saved three billion lives. But I couldn't save my son. A machine took him from me. And I am terminated. Has been her purpose for so long, and she succeeded twice, only to see everything fall apart. Yep. And that we are only given a hint of how sad and oblivious her life has been since then when she says you know and I drink until I pass out there's such a autobiographical note of bitter truth about that from Linda Hamilton who has not had the most wonderful of lives there was a lot of intensity mm-hmm. some of which involved James Cameron a clear-eyed connection to the past yeah it's a it's a this is what happened well what still happened for me, even though, you know, the timeline changed and time travel and all that jazz, like, that's still, like, she still lost her son, even though, you know, the machines did not take over and, like, things went differently. She still lost her son, and she will always have to live with that. And it's a, she's also this walking, talking reminder that, hey, like, this could, shit could still go tits up. It, it clearly did in a different way. So pay attention or this could still happen or something like this could still happen. You could totally do this movie with neither Carl nor Sarah and just have it be a a close-knit character piece, effectively remaking the original Terminator. But with them there, that's what echoes from the past. That's what gives it the generational kick. Mm -hmm. Uh And the legitimacy. The the other yeah. thing that Sarah as the um, as the battle crone as the 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 sage you know <laughs> you know uh, basically doing the Obi Wan Kenobi Han Solo thing gives to this is it underlines sort of the the mixture of fatalism and idealism that goes all the way back to the first Terminator in that she and John were able to yes they they were able to buy us some time they stopped Skynet which bought us some time kicked the and, can down the road yeah and and yes you know they did succeed in their mission they stopped the T1000 they stopped Skynet from ever being born um whether or not that like by this rules world of time travel means that you eventually have to cancel out John's existence somehow because otherwise paradoxes happen that's that's like a discussion for the the time travel thing but thematically what that does is it says that kicking the can down the road sometimes has a terrible cost but it buys you just enough time for the next generation to get ready to fight their fight and right now i mean i again i hate to do you know current year argument but sarah's (laughs) sarah's kind of like the the perfect disillusioned boomer who has been through the shit has seen how bad things get has personally lost this stuff and she's got every reason to be like, you know what? I'm done with this. I had to go through this already. I'm not going to go through this again. And instead, you know, at first she's, she's kind of a jackass about it, but she's absolutely willing to throw herself back into the mix and say, I'm going to help you. You don't understand how things are. I've been through this. 
keep your phone in a bag of potato chips. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to figure this out. Um, because, you know, not only has she had to like learn through this, but she knows that having someone with her, like she can be for Danny would make it easier for her in a way that she didn't get because she, she didn't get this sort of support that she can now give to Danny. The, the fact that they both go off in the Jeep together is very important and a very clear difference, even as it echoes the first Terminator, because Sarah's alone in that. Yeah. And in this, Danny doesn't have to be. She gives you... herself a new purpose, which is all tied in with what Carl is about. Mm-hmm. You can uh. you compare her to Han Solo and Obi-Wan Kenobi, but I would argue that... Han Solo and, o- and Obi-Wan kind of did their thing and then quit and ran away, but she's never she has never gotten to rest. She's kept working and kept fighting this entire time. So if we want to stick with the Star Wars or the Force, Ana- uh, uh, Force Awakens Leia. analogy, she's Leia. Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's almost like there should have been a really, really good final movie all about Leia and Rey. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh internally screaming, externally screaming. Yeah, that ties back very specifically to her her line in the motel room about funerals don't help them and goodbyes don't help you. She's right, you can't bury your dead while you're running. But that's why she had to keep running because she needed to keep one step ahead of the grief of losing mm-hmm. her son after putting everything mm-hmm. into keeping him alive her her whole and and obviously this is there to some extent with every parent but every moment of his first 11 12 years of life for her was about keeping him alive for a greater good and mm-hmm. She achieved the greater good, but she still lost him. And I, I think a big part of why she has been so driven and driven and driven and why she has not stopped and has not rested is because she doesn't fucking want to. Because if she does, she has to face that. She loss. rested before once. The fact that she has bare feet in the flashback uh-huh. sequence mm-hmm. at the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. for a start, it vaguely evokes the Pescadero sequence where yeah. she was vulnerable, mm-hmm. but also she's taken off her army boots and she's actually thought... We can rest for a moment. We can have a drink and oh no. And what she's been left with is this hammered message. You do not put that vigilance down for a second. Oh, may she lasted this long getting by just on anger. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, every every couple of years she gets a new Terminator to take it out on. Yeah. 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 But, but what Danny then gives her in that moment in the clearing outside Carl's house is... She gives her the opportunity to just take a breath and think about John for a moment, not as the future leader of the resistance, but as her son. And that was something she struggled to do when he was alive. It also offers her this, uh, again, Danny having lost her brother and her father on the same day and not even having time to mourn them. They, they get to echo that because she talks with Sarah about that in the, in the hotel room and then Sarah opens back up to to Danny and she finally responds to that in an emotional way when she talks about not being able to remember John's face yeah. um, because it's and it's very much a, a god that scene is hard to watch not just because Hamilton's performance transforms her back to the way that she looked 
lost and lonely and scared in the police station back in 1984, but it's it's also the first time she's really admitting to herself that she didn't get to love her son as a person the way that she would have. She loved him as an ideal and mm-hmm. as a cause, but she didn't get to love him as a person the way that other people do. And Danny kind of understands that and she's going to have to sort of love everyone the same way going forward. She's also Kyle Reese in this, um, insofar as she said, when she says, I, I don't even have a picture of him, the suggestion mm-hmm. is all she keeps thinking about is that flashback, that moment where John's not exactly in focus, she can't really get a beat on his face, and this moment of pure, like, a, a parent's worst possible nightmare occurs and it's just her ruination each and every time that's her shell shock that Kyle himself was jangled to shit by the war and so he's almost human wreckage when he comes back to save Sarah but there was you know he was the guy for the job (laughs) (sighs) so much of the time that women are the emotional glue that holds a family together Mm -hmm. and You know, we get so many stories of, as as Alex so wonderfully puts it, my dead family! (laughs) And that sort of thing. At some point, I just want a super cut of all of the episodes, all of the clips of of Alex screaming that on this show. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it, it, which, number one, is such a trope and such a, like, a it's such a, a device and such an easy thing. It it precludes, number one, like, the discussion of genuine, you know, male loss and grief and dealing with that sort of thing. But number two, it, it completely bypasses the amount of times that, you know, that, yeah, women, well, your wife lost their kid, too, or... Or whatever have usually they're dead too in those scenarios. But the fact of well, what about when women lose their kids? And a lot of the times on top of that, you know, women don't get the luxury of that level of grief. You still have to hold the rest of the family together or yourself. You still have to keep a business going. You still have to take care of a parent. You still like there's a there's a luxury of grief that so many women don't even get. And that clearly, you know, that's touching on the fact that Sarah, you know, she hasn't been able to grieve. Literally, she has not been able to become, let herself be that vulnerable to keep herself alive. She's not been out of survival mode in... How? What did it say? It was twenty years since mm-hmm. something like the that. Scene yeah. at the very beginning. 20, Twenty-two years. This movie is set in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was nineteen ninety-eight. So yeah, it's worth noting. Like we touched on it very briefly, but it's it's worth diving a little bit deeper. That one of the one of the running themes of this movie is to give death meaning. They they bring that up. They they come back to that a whole lot. Um, you know, when when Diego dies in the car, you know, Grace mentions, you know, if he's going to die, but if I don't get you out, it's not going to mean anything. And, you know, she the, the whole like for John, all of those text messages was Carl's attempt to 
help uh, help Sarah give John's death meaning and even at the end when you know when Grace dies to do the thing you know to so that so that she can so that Danny can get the EMP out she mentions like I, you know I'm not sorry because this is what I was here to do her her death is given meaning by the fact that that she's able to come back and and use that to def- eventually defeat the Reb 9 there's an awful lot in this movie about purpose and specifically about what we choose our purposes to be rather than the purposes mm-hmm. we're given by by destiny and by fate and i think one of the one of my favorite elements of carl and how he develops as a character is his um, his interaction with a human family which unconsciously he's chosen a replica of Sarah and John, even though he's obviously a different unit than the <laughs> one that, that protected them and, and threw himself into the steel vat. Nick Stahl gets confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, but he's he's chosen that programming that he is the protector for this family who is under threat himself, and that has been his purpose for many, many years, and that's kept him going. I like the fact that also he mentions he's like, one of the things is like, it's like, I change diapers, I could change diapers without complaining, and I'm very, very funny. Yes. <laughs> now that I think about it, actually, that was one of the elements of Terminator 3, this baleful, I'm the one who killed John Connor reveal that he uh, gives, only now it's past tense and, and something that's actually affected him. What does Carl bring to the role of the machine protector? I think Carl um, actually brings a not only a humanity but a hope for humanity. Um, you know, there, there's a deleted scene in T2 where they basically add a or they take out a chip in his head and reset it so that he's able to learn and become more human. In this case, we've just decided that he can do it, which is fine. But essentially, when you compare him to Sarah and see that he has become less uh, less mechanistic while she has become more, it becomes, it becomes a great contrast. Also, um, I just I, I love the drape. He has, you know, a drape business. Carl's designs, <laughs> we won't leave you hanging. I think in my head canon, Carl actually had that chip reset as well. Because Yeah, mine too. I, it's entirely possible that when Skynet ceased to be, mm. something reset it because he... In, mm-hmm. in T2, in the, the deleted scene... He or the says, extended edition, which is or, yeah, the, the one to the watch. the part that they put back in. He says yeah. when Skynet sends us out alone, mm. they set that chip to read-only. Yeah. That means that chip is not read-only by default. Its default setting is in learn. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it could have spontaneously flicked itself to learn when uh, Skynet vanished. I can't get enough of machines slowly reckoning on mankind because they I've said this before repeatedly when we cover um, artificial intelligence they are our children effectively so mm-hmm. uh, having a machine live as a human for decades and to the point where he cares about and is cared about in a quiet subtle non-melodramatic way his family 
as I said, it is it is in contrast to what Sarah does in T2, which is to try to turn herself into a Terminator and a machine to take out Miles Dyson, and she can't do it because it would it requires too much sacrifice. Mm-hmm. The other thing that Carl offers is I mentioned earlier about how commodifying people will inherently lead to societal collapse because you can't commodify individuals and still expect individuals to work in a society. Um, mm. Carl is the exact opposite of that. He he is something that had been a thing, a mass-produced commodified thing, finally getting the chance to learn and be treated as an individual and how that just base recognition of individuality and self and being given the chance to learn your own purpose will take something that was that that he doesn't necessarily have trauma the same way that we have trauma but he has an artificial intelligence sort of version of that because he was sent off to kill something without much control of his own and then abandoned and so he's been having to reckon with that i sense damage the data could be called pain exactly (laughs) <laughs> and in in kind, what he senses regarding Sarah, the data could be called regret. It's and some form of simulation of looking back on a, a scenario that, given the binary, cho- given the choice, which is something that he actually prizes, choice, he would choose not to. And the, they, I love that they mentioned the. Um, I can't feel love the way humans can and I used to think it was an Mm -hmm. advantage but it isn't Mm. Uh, but they they even hang their hat on it so plainly in having the moment at the end where you're tipping between the all is lost and the we might be able to win being decided by Sarah in spite of what she had said earlier where she said I'm never going to call you Carl acknowledging him by name as an individual and as a person Mm. or, or at least as his own sort of being that's what turns the tides that that's what kind of snaps him out and wakes him up and allows him to give just that one last push so that they can kill the rev nine it was mm-hmm. funny uh we were, we've been redoing a uh, simpsons watch along on our discord where we watch a different episode every day and the one we saw earlier today was um uh oh brother where art thou no relation to the film by the Coen brothers. And <laughs> it's one of the ones with the Rainier Wolfcastle as, uh, as McBain. Like he sort of turns up and goes with McBain out of the way. Nothing can stop us anymore. No business. Only your death. McBain! Meeting adjourned. Two fifty for this? What a chip. He certainly broke up that meeting. Right now I'm thinking about holding another meeting in bed. Oh, McBain. It's the early Simpsons going, ha ha, stupid Arnold Schwarzenegger and his stupid action movies. And, you know, back in the early 90s, that was the perception of, of action movies, that they were all gormless. It's quite extraordinary to see him now 30 years later, turning in a performance as subtle as this. For a Terminator the, role he'd already basically done. Many yeah. times. And, and the, 
the body language that he has, Schwarzenegger always had a very good sense of his own physicality. That's why he worked as the Terminator back in 1984. Mm -hmm. But but you can tell that the 30-plus years of acting and life experience in between, getting to inform that even since, I mean, he'd had time to kind of hone that edge in the early 90s, but getting to play with some real drama of that, the, the scene where he picks up the sunglasses and looks at his own reflection in the eye and then puts them back down mm-hmm. is the kind of this movie's mission statement mm-hmm. in microcosm, but it's mm-hmm. also one of the best moments of acting that I've seen Schwarzenegger ever do. Yeah. yeah, and they could have if he didn't put as much into it, they could have made that a humorous scene. That could have been a gag, but because Schwarzenegger really very clearly threw himself into that, I think they, that's what kept them from doing that and, and made it you know a very serious, poignant little throwaway bit. Yeah, it's it's, it's the difference between ah ha the sunglasses. You get it, you get it. You remember the sunglasses and. A character choosing, I am not going to fight as a machine. I am going to fight as an individual and as a person. Yeah. I love to, uh, when it comes to Carl, the fact that, well, number one, the idea that a Terminator could learn to be different and could could learn to be, you know, to be more human and choose to do that is a, that's a fascinating idea, number one. Number two, the fact that, like, the positive thing about this is the fact that while he definitely does seem to have some regret and he does seem to understand what he cost Sarah, he does not really seem to have any guilt. And in general, guilt as an emotion is, it has its place to a point, but so much of the time we as humans let our guilt destroy us or control us and he doesn't wallow in that he clearly like okay this is a thing i did and i may regret it but i'm not it doesn't paralyze me and it doesn't prevent me from moving forward yeah and i think uh again this goes to tim miller as a director and as a writer uh being very very good at using things for multiple uh purposes um, in this case, again, I, I point to his business. His name is Carl's Draperies, and the slogan is "We won't leave you hanging," which is in itself kind of funny and corny and uh, cutesy. Poo, I guess, would be the word that we're using for this episode. <laughs> um, but also a reference to something that John told him in number two when John's teaching him how to high five. He says, "Come on, man, don't leave me hanging." His his business's his business's slogan is a reminder of the boy that he murdered. Shit. Is, is this confused? A, is this a good movie? I think it might be. Yeah, I think it's a good movie. I'm sorry, Tim Miller, the Deadpool guy, somehow uses humor in a poignant way. Amazing, right? Who would have thunk it? Hold that tweet. We are all well aware this was not the same T800. Watching John with the machine. It was suddenly so clear. The Terminator would never stop. It would never leave him. And it would never hurt him, never shout at him or get drunk and hit him or say it was too busy to spend time with him. It would always be there and it would die to protect him. 
of all the would-be fathers who came and went over the years, this thing, this machine, was the only one who measured up. In an insane world, it was the sanest choice. Yeah. Who said earlier, searching for meaning in death? That was me. Okay. Uh, that hits hard regarding what uh, uh, Debbie just said uh, on guilt, that he doesn't feel guilt, but his telling Sarah at the end for John is an accord. It's him saying uh, he doesn't want to leave his family. He doesn't want to lose his family, but he's done his calculations and worked out that he will not see them again. I won't be back. And it's he doesn't want to die and this whole thing started because skynet didn't want to die but carl finds something more to work for as a result of what he has done to make amends i love the idea that skynet given enough time to reflect on what it did to mankind might possibly reach a similar conclusion i overreact You overreacted? Mm -hmm. I think it would have to be a very long timeline. And I think it's more likely that Skynet would potentially have gone that way than the, the Legion that we now see mm -hmm. would do. Well, we don't know yeah. Legion all that much. But there's... Um, yeah. We probably never will. Well, indeed. But the... Because you guarantee the next time this comes around, it'll be Skynet, Skynet, Skynet. The, yeah. the thing that keeps coming up in almost every human character in this over and over again is self-sacrifice that they will run hard for survival until they hit the wall of the thing that they would sacrifice for and then they will quite happily go down and that's the part that I that no matter how human Skynet has been indicated as thinking from time to time I don't believe it was getting even close to that point of self-sacrifice nice. I think that perhaps it might have in time because the what well, we we know nothing about Legion, so we don't know its motives. But we know that Skynet's motive is it was supposed to stop war and determine that human beings were the main cause of war. It was bad programming, and so if it could figure, if you could get Skynet to realize that there is a a zero with law, let us say. Stopping war is not an end in itself. It has to be for the purpose of preserving human life. Then I think that would have been possible. Legion, who knows? For all we know, it's just an AI war thing that does war things. That is essentially the conclusion that Sarah and Danny end up reaching at the end. Stopping war is not a good enough end in and of itself. We have to be able to thrive mm. in this world. We want to give an extra special thank you to our $15 patrons who get sponsor credit every episode. With what's going on right now, we completely understand if you have to cut the amount you support us by, no matter where you are on the scale. But as I record this, the first of the month has come around, and our Patreon final amount has only gone down by a few dollars. The situation we're in right now is going to hit people in different ways. And we won't blame anyone for pulling out. But do keep listening. We're going to keep putting out our show and do what we can to get you folks through this. So again, 
thank you to all of our patrons, and a special thank you to the named sponsors, Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. This episode ended up nearly three hours long, and it's also, as you may have noticed, very heavy, so to contain it, I trimmed away a good 25 minutes of the more chatty material, where we speculated on what would happen to the Terminator series in the future, and that is going to be available on the Patreon bonus feed. Here's a clip. The, the idea of doing something new and to take advantage of, you know, the big genres that are in demand. Uh, best case would be that this franchise sits dormant for a while until until we have the next whatever, you know, whatever the equivalent of superhero movies are right now. Like the next big genre, the next, you know, flip of what everybody's doing. And it's then musicals. Terminator the musical would be lovely. Basically, or the, westerns. The, yeah. the triple whammy of In the Heights, um, West Side Story, and Hamilton. Everyone's mm. doing musicals from now on after, mm. after this. Yeah, there we go. It's just a shame that Robert Downey Jr.'s Doctor Doolittle wasn't also a musical. <laughs> Is it <laughs> though? <laughs> <laughs> really? That is the Cutting Class episode on Terminator Dark Fate, available on our Patreon, where we are now making various previously released bonus episodes and quick reviews available for all of our patrons, regardless of level, just to give you a little more to listen to as we all endure this isolation, including the complete archive of bad reviews against humanity, some of which you won't have heard at all, which I'm releasing every Monday episode by episode, and we're doing new stuff for that. If only to remind you all that it's the start of a new week, as the names of days lose all meaning. So let's round off by asking our esteemed guests where you can find the work of theirs that they are most proud of. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at BLC Agnew. You can read my long-form stuff at normannerd.blogspot.com. And I also contribute to Synapse. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Sequentially-yours.com. It hasn't been updated in a little while because it's been a little bit busy and whatnot. But uh, there's plenty of stuff there that we've both contributed to about comic books, comic book films... Um, that sort of thing. Also, if you check out somethingghoulish.com, um, I've been helping to write for them, and we're considering possibly doing a podcast for them, just kind of figure out the format and whatnot. So, but there's a lot of great stuff about horror from a bunch of different contributors. Highly recommend them. Also, we are both on Twitter. Um, Karu is MoonPanzer22, and I am best at 8300, and I... I am especially proud of, I've done several threads on recent movies, I just did one a few days ago about Sense8, as we just watched it, and it... Oh, nice. 
I feel like it kind of hacked my soul. It really <laughs> it had a pretty profound effect on yeah. me. Nice. J- JMS is the best television writer ever to live. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on a... I produce a podcast called Recorded Tomorrow that is about using the tropes and uh, tools of time travel on uh, to tell better stories. Uh, one of the things, like, the episodes that I'm most proud of were um, a few months ago, I did one where we actually had a writer come on the show and pitch us a storyline and kind of helped her get it started. That was that was really cool. And then uh, I actually wrote and recorded a short story most recently. The the March episode uh, is that and I uh, was was pretty proud of that one. You can find that where you can find podcasts just called Recorded Tomorrow. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Time Travel Pod. Nice. Thank you. And let us finish on the amazing score of Tom Holkenberg for Terminator Dark Fate, which includes the Spanish guitar version of the main theme that I just adore. Sharon and I wanted to do a show that would, I suppose, address how people are feeling right now. And uh, I, I mentioned on Twitter that Dark Fate is the best slash worst slash best again movie to watch right now, I suppose, like more so even than contagion because it leaves you with this applicable sense of is humanity doomed are we going to be scrabbling for scraps in the ruins of 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 what we've torn down and ultimately we wanted to do a show that would allow you to take a little solace in something hopeful and that's honestly what even though they are melancholy when they're done right the terminator films have in spades a sense of hope that something will prevail and that we will get through so Mm -hmm. uh, the Steven Spielberg will continue as next week we will be doing E.T. the Extraterrestrial which is a much warmer, fuzzier kind of more (laughs) comforting film to to lose yourself in and uh, following that we've got Poltergeist which is bone chilling but again comes with that sense of innate family togetherness so we are committed to delivering you folks content that will get you through this so we will see you next week i've been alex shaw i've been sharon shaw and school's out said there's a storm coming in.